Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read the first 11 verses. We're going to glorify God by our reading of His Word. And this is the Word of God. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, as we have poured poured out our hearts to you in song, as we have lamented to you our sorrows, as we have confessed our sins and been assured that there is pardon in Jesus Christ, we come to you now thanking you for your word, that it is a gift to us, even a balm for our souls. We pray that you would cause us to be reoriented in our lives to you once again. Sin and this fallen, painful world has disoriented all of us. We have come with our laments as a result. We lament the changes in health, the poor health that many people in this congregation have. We lament the loss of loved ones. We lament changes in relationships where we are estranged from people, people that we love. We lament things that in our society are called good and yet they are evil. We lament so many things, things that we cannot understand or explain. We lament the curse of sin that permeates this world it is only right for us to lament it because we are burdened about it and then when we see as we look out on this sin 
We recognize sin in our own lives. And, O Lord, we are weary, weary of our own sin. We pray that you would give us your Spirit to apply even the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would know the peace that comes from having our sins forgiven. I pray that as we consider your word today, that your word would go forth, that it would illumine our understanding. It would make us a people who are then so tethered to your word that we can face whatever lamentable circumstances we may face and know that you are good and that you are to be glorified in and through it all. We can confess that your faithfulness is great. And we ask, Lord, that you would remind us of that even as we look at your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When you make connections to things going on in the world, you make your observations and you connect one thing to another, it's then easy to think that there are conspiracies everywhere. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire, as, as you know, we say. And, and so then you get the idea of these conspiracy theories. But what we can fail to understand as Christians, as Christian believers, we can fail to understand that there is an actual interconnectedness to the ways that fallen sinful people will work together to try to undermine the purposes of God in the world. We will also fail to recognize or to understand the way that the curse works in the world, where our bodies with its health fails, and the interconnectedness of our environment and what's going on in our bodies, how this interconnectedness of this fallenness comes together to create old age and even death. We can see this interconnectedness even as the sense of of the problem of a systemic sin. And we use that term generally in our day referring to systemic racism. You've heard it many times, meaning being prejudicial against people of differing ethnicities simply by the color of their skin. And when that's entrenched into a policy or an institutional plan, then we can describe that as a systemic racism. Now, whether or not in the debates about our own society and what's intentional and planned and and what isn't in terms of any type of systemic racism, we can debate about that. Nevertheless, we have to admit that there is a structure to sin in the world. Why is it? Why is it that the sins that you commit or the sins that I commit, that I knowingly commit, they tend to follow a certain pattern? They, sin, they tend to be these ones that... We, we've been down this road before, right? Haven't you felt that? Like, oh, I'm sinning in this way again over and over, it seems to be a pattern. 
Or why is it that you can come and having sung those wonderful songs that we sung this morning, you'll come away from this service and you'll feel like you're on a spiritual high. And yet by the time you drive home, you will have sinned again. You'll have sinned against your spouse or against your children or in your own mind or in your own heart. And you'll be like, oh, here I go again, crashing down. Here's the pattern. It's just like the roller coaster at Callaway Park. Or do they still have it running out there? I don't know. I haven't been out there for years. Just a Calgary illustration. But there's a pattern. A pattern. And this sin is systemic. It's a system of sin. It's this great curse cast upon mankind because of our first father's sin in Eden, namely Adam's sin. But you might be thinking, oh, a system of sin? You know, haven't we moved past that? Isn't, isn't our, our sins just, just a series of isolated events, of, of mistakes, of illnesses, of flub-ups? Isn't that it? And then you say, well, nobody's perfect. And, and it's just all this collection of, of random mistakes. Well, no. Sin is then this corruption of rebellion against God. And the whole world is tainted by it. It's all affected by it. Because everything, we can see it in evidence, everything in the world dies. The wages of sin is death. And that is not just in terms of physical death. There is even this spiritual death for those fallen human beings. But what we might be surprised then to find out is then that this sin is structural. And when we see the system of sin, then we start to recognize the contours or the shape of the kingdom of darkness in which even demons ply their trade. And so what we're going to see is that in Galatia, where Paul was addressing this church in Galatia, that Paul was very concerned about correcting those believers who were in danger of turning away from the liberty, the freedom of God's kingdom, and returning to the slavery of a system of sin. So we're going to see first, Paul is going to describe this system of sin. And secondly, we're going to see the threat of Christians being enslaved by that again. And thirdly then, we're going to see the reality, the precious reality that the Christian believer is no longer a slave and need not be. And that is a wonderful truth. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. So if you've got your bulletin, the system of sin enslaved to the system, and then no longer a slave. In Galatians 4.1, Paul introduces this metaphor, this metaphor to describe what life is like living in the world in the old age. So it's the old age, the fallen world, the old age, the fallen world, who, those who only had access to the old covenant. 
And Paul uses the experience of kids. So this is especially, I think, relevant for teenagers. Listen to verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. So teenagers out there, just think of this. This is, this is exactly how you feel at home sometimes. You feel like you are a slave. Yes? No? Maybe not. Everything's lovely at your house. Great. You get told what to do. You get told where to go. You get told what to eat, what not to eat, you know, when to speak, when to be quiet, how to dress, and so on. Right? You're thinking, oh, Sounds like a pretty nice, orderly home. <laughs> pretty good. Let's, let's have a little bit more of that. Yet as a kid, you also have the privilege that you then will likely inherit everything that belongs to your parents. You know, including all the junk, right? You've got to do something with it. You are the natural heir even while you feel like a slave. And in a sense, you you own everything, but you don't have the freedom to do anything without your parents' permission, right? So, So that's the juxtaposition. Now, how long does this last? How long does this last? Well, until the date set by your father. Basically, when you become an adult. Now, until then, until that point, you know, your, your dad appoints teachers, coaches, others who are going to instruct you and you have to obey them. It's kind of the reminder, you know, we send our kids to school. Well, the teachers there are proxies for our parental authority. And they are subject to our authority, the teachers are. But then our kids have to listen to the teachers as if they're listening to good old dad, right? And that's, that's kind of how that works because they've been, been appointed that way, just like in the ancient world. It is just a side note. It's interesting that Paul refers to the father as having the authority to delegate any instruction or training which their child receives. It's the role of the, tr- the true patros. You know, patros is the Greek word for father, Now, this experience for the teenager, I'm picking on teenagers, this experience for the teenagers, you know, this kind of, uh, what's the song? The Teenage Wasteland, you know, this, this sort of slavery, it's the key feature that Paul wants us to grasp because he's making a connection. He says then in verse 3, in the same way we also, that's Christian believers, we also when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So what Paul is saying is that before someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are trapped in a system that enslaves them. He calls this system, the Greek phrase is, the stoicheia to cosmos. The stoicheia to cosmos. The stoicheia is the elementary principles or the elementary spirits. You might have a footnote in your Bible. It'll say elementary spirits. 
and it is of the, the cosmu, to cosmu, the cosmos, the universe. So it's the elementary principles, the stoicheia of the cosmos. Now that phrase refers to what I'm calling the system of sin. The idea of the stoicheia, these elementary principles, it refers to basic building blocks. Lego blocks, if you will. Just basic building blocks. Or the the blocks of a foundation that you would lay in the foundation of a building. Basic building blocks. If you were to think of the stoicheia in terms of language, the stoicheia of language would be the ABCs. It would be the alphabet. If you were learning high school chemistry, you would start by learning the periodic table of chemical elements. It's the table of elements, right? It's the, it's the basic building blocks. And so, you know, then we can say, you know, it's elementary, Watson, right? In other words, it's basic. It's fundamental. It's the orderly rows of things lined up. That's literally what the stoicheia means. But when we add this other feature to it, when we say it is of the world, it's, it's the stoicheia of the world, of the cosmos, then we get a problem. It's a serious problem because this, the cosmos, the world order, is marred by sin. It's marred by sin. The world, we could say, the world is worldly. The world is worldly. The world is fallen, accursed, corrupted, polluted, degenerate, and in a state of rebellion against God. Not just individuals, but the whole creation groans because of it. So if we're looking at then the fundamental basic building blocks, row upon row, of the corrupt cosmos, then we're talking about a system of sin. A system of sin. Again, this is, this is then, you, you don't need to then follow so-called conspiracy theories to find the system of sin. It's everywhere. And so that's, that's what every person who doesn't belong to Jesus Christ, every person is then enslaved in this system of sin. All of Calgary is enslaved to a system of sin. All of Canada is enslaved to a system of sin. This whole world enslaved to the stoicheia to cosmo, the elementary principles of the world. As good as it might appear to be, there is that layer of fallenness in everything. And as a result, it, it was understood in terms of this language, the stoicheia to cosmo, the elementary principles of the fallen cosmos, it's so corrupted that this phrase was understood in, in ancient times, it was understood to refer to even having demonic influence. The stoicheia to cosmo, the elementary principles of the world. That's why your footnote has the elementary spirits. It's the idea that there is actually a demonic influence on this whole system of sin. 
Now, I spoke about Satan's work and the God of this age last time. And we are seeing then that there is a demonic influence in this fallen world. And sometimes we just like to be blissfully unaware of this. But such elementary principles, they're not only demonically influenced, they are called, down in verse 9, they are called weak and worthless. Weak and worthless. And Paul, Paul gives then a, a specific example of how the stoicheia works. And he says in verse 10, You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, why is that a big deal? You know, we, we celebrate Christmas, we have Easter, we come to church on Sunday. Why would that be a big deal? Well, in Galatia, what Paul is confronting are these Gentile, professing Christians who th- they've come to think that Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. And they've started to think that they need to go back and, and be really original, go back and start keeping the Jewish rules. Start keeping the old covenant law. Start following the kosher food laws. And even heeding the Mosaic ceremonial demands. In other words, these Gentiles thought, well, they believe in Jesus, but he's not enough, but we actually have to become essentially ethnic Jews. And that's why, as uncomfortable as it is to talk about, and it's always uncomfortable when I preach on it, the issue of circumcision was a major discussion in Paul's letter to the Gentile church at Galatia. Why? Because it was a requirement under the Mosaic Covenant. It's a requirement for all, all males to be circumcised, to show that they're a part of the covenant. And so this is a big issue. You've got these Gentiles... Christian, profess, professedly Christian believers who are saying Jesus is not enough and I've got to try to somehow get into this old covenant paradigm. I've got to, I've got to do the stuff. I've got to get the surgery to be a part of that. Even adding on all of those requirements to Jesus. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever had rules imposed on you that you have a hard time keeping. Should have seen me driving here. Um, anyway, just to confess, open confession. Sometimes these rules, they, they can feel very oppressive, especially when you don't have the power to keep the rules so that there's demands upon you that you don't have the ability to keep. And and that's the feeling which the world has in trying to keep God's law without having the Holy Spirit. So God's law, there's a lot of people talking about this right now. God's law stands and abides over the whole universe. And yet, there is an inability of people to keep that law because they do not have the Holy Spirit. Because they are not born from, born from above, they're not born again. And so Satan has capitalized on this. He's capitalized on this. He has taken God's good law. It's good. The law is always good from God. It is a good law, a gift. 
And what Satan has done in all of his strategy and cleverness is to make the law essentially insufferable. The result is then people hate God's law and they reject it. The real need then is for people to have a Savior who has kept the law for them. Keeping it perfectly. Keeping it righteously. And then to transfer that completion in a declaration to transfer it to our account legally. And that's what Jesus did in his obedience to the cross. Going to the cross. I'll just quote from the late John Stott who comments on this. I'm quoting here. What Paul means, Stott says, what Paul means is that the devil took this good thing, that's the law, and twisted it to his own evil purpose in order to enslave men and women. Just as during a child's minority, his guardian may ill-treat and even tyrannize him in ways which his father never intended. So the devil has exploited God's good law in order to tyrannize men in ways God never intended. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive them to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. And I'll tell you what, there are many, many people who when they have encounter with Christianity, they think that it is only about telling you about your sin and driving you to despair and not offering you any hope. But of course, then they don't understand the goodness of the good news. Now, Satan, I just want to kind of keep this, make sure this is clear. Satan uses God's good gift And when he does so, he uses God's law to crush us, to enslave us, to kill us. Listen listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this situation in his own autobiography. You can turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Because this is kind of getting at these issues. And even if you're not familiar with this dynamic... I think, like in the, it's, it's Paul and his, his understanding, I think you understand these feelings. Romans chapter 7, picking up in verse 7, Paul says rhetorically, what, sh- what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet it, because the law is good. By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment, right? In God's law. And then notice then how Paul personifies sin as an active agent. He says in Romans 7 verse 8, But sin, like this agent, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then Paul asked the question, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. See, this is the, the state of the person who is sold into this slavery of the stoicheia, this these elementary principles of the world. And so, one of the ESV study Bible, that one of the editors had just a, this really nice phrase. They put it and they said this, legalistic superstition and demonic domination are closely linked. Think about that. Legalistic superstition. So, trying then then to to try to earn God's favor, trying to be obedient, trying to do the stuff that you speculate are somehow going to get you ahead with God, when you're doing that, the demons are at hand wanting you, wanting you to stay trapped in that. They want you to stay deceived in that. You see, legalism, that is, wanting to, wanting to earn God's favor or prove yourself or prove yourself to others, that was at the heart of the problem in Galatia. It wasn't the law itself. It is what sin did to the law and how then these professedly Gentile believers were then thinking, oh, I've got to go back. I've got to go back and try to hustle up. I've got to get busy and try to keep all this law, not realizing they were going back to pursue this sin-tainted law, not realizing they'd been liberated from that in the gospel. Legalism is at the heart of the problem that Paul's addressing, and it's a perennial problem even among Christians, and I can say with quite a bit of confidence, legalism is a problem in our hearts here. It's a problem. You see, the whole world is enslaved to legalism. And the danger for Christians is that we can be drawn back into that legalism just like these Galatian Gentile Christians were falling into. The same thing. Well, that brings me then to my next point, which is this threat. The threat to the Christian back in Galatians 4. You can turn back there. In Galatians 4 and verses 8 and 9, the threat to the Christian is stated Namely, to be enslaved again. Formerly, he says in verse 8, when you did not know God, so before, if you're a Christian believer, before you're converted, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? Turn back again. This is kind of a reverse repentance. 
It's not a turning to God, it's turning from God to go back. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? See, this threat of re-enslavement was real. Paul said to the Colossians, he warned them, he said in Colossians 2.8, he said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to, and here's our phrase, the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. So how, what, what is your religion? You know, that's what my non-Christian buddies say. Oh yeah, you're, Clint, you're really into the religion. You're, re- you're really religious. Yeah, okay. Relig- my religion is to be according to Christ. Not about all the other things. It's what, what does Christ demand of me? What does Christ want? How, what's my standing with him? And so here... Here, there is this this possibility of being captive, of being enslaved to to these thoughts and philosophies and this this deceit of human tradition. Why do you do what you do? Why do you you have your marriage the way you do? Why do you parent the way you do? Why do you conduct your work the way you do? Well, if you're a Christian believer, hopefully you're trying to say, yeah, I'm trying to apply the Word of God. But there's areas of our lives where we're quite thoughtless. And then why are we doing what we do? You know, it's always a good test to know why you're doing what you're doing. Is is to ask yourself, you know, what do I care what people think about? You know, do I care what people think about when when I do things? Like, is that what I'm doing? Is for other people's opinion? Or am I doing it because God has said so? It's always a little, little test. Paul refers to the Christian believer and he asks in Colossians 2, 20 to 23, he says, if with Christ you died, you died to the elementary principle, elementary spirits of the world, why, why, he says, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And then he says this about the legalism, verse 23 of Colossians 2. These, like doing this stuff, these religious stuff, doing, and it doesn't have to be religious. It can be just stuff you're doing to be acceptable in the religion of society. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That's like, You're doing things to almost harm yourself in order to show how pious you are. Promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body. But you know what? They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Tell me about the besetting sin that you have struggled with. And you have set up little schedules and little accountabilities and little plots and plans. And they've all failed and you just keep doing the same sin over and over again. That's because when you start stacking up these little mini rules and things, if you aren't looking to Christ 
and reliant upon Him and looking to Him for strength. And you're leaning on these human traditions and little rules. They just can't, they can't do the job. They can't pull it off. They're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul, he's making explicit in Colossians what he'd already addressed to the Galatians. Self-made religion. What is this? Gentiles who believe in Jesus, and, and yet now they're going to go back and try to be Jews. They're, they're, making up, they're making it up as they go. You know, asceticism, these Gentile guys were getting circumcised so that they could be more Jewish. I thought Jesus was enough. I guess not. These are self-made practices of denial, of ritual, of self-inflicted harm, all for the purpose of attaining a status of vindication, a status of virtue in the world, a status where you are satisfied and and even, even to the extent your personal divine will is accomplished. You know what legalism is about? Legalism is all about control. It's all about control. You wanting to be in control. Not being controlled by God. That's when you're when you're controlled by God, that's true spiritual self-control. But legalism is about you being the God. You're the God and you control your world. Or you select someone else or some group and you say, they're going to be my God and you're going to meet every demand that they have. This legalism issue, even, even in the struggles that we've all had over the last few years, this legalism issue is the dominant problem of all of us, everybody. You can look, it doesn't matter who you look to. You look into your friends. Well, what, did, what did they expect of me? You know, you look to your boss. What does he expect? Your coworkers, what do they expect? Family members, the government. It doesn't matter. Let me get, go from preaching to meddling, but you know, don't raise your hand, but tell me if there is any mother in here who has ever felt guilty that they aren't doing enough for their kids because they've seen what other moms are doing with their kids. I, don't raise your hand. You feel guilty. Guilty by comparison. But that guilt is legalistic guilt. You feel guilty for failing to meet someone else's standard. So you strive to meet it. Or you want to meet your own standard that's ever shifting and never seeming to be able to be satisfied. Talked about the moms. is, Is there a man here who has ever felt frustrated that he can't please his boss or his client or his wife? or his own high expectations. You're just constantly mad at yourself. And so that man, what does he do? He gets frustrated. And he gets angry when he fails. And so then you become an angry man. Why, why is that guy so angry? Why is he always seemingly so frustrated? Ah, 
It's because he's always trying to please all these people or he's trying to please his own high lofty standards and he's failing and it makes him angry and he feels out of control. It's all very legalistic. You see, universally, for men and women in our world, they get good at that kind of legalism. They get good at it. They get good at it. But of course, when you're good at that kind of legalism, that means you are a slave to it. You're enslaved. You're given over to it. And that, this whole city. What is it? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to pick on the oil patch as an example in Calgary. When the oil's flowing, everybody's in a scramble to climb the ladder to buy more stuff to show the stuff they've got compared to other people's stuff. And then all of a sudden the patch crashes, oil price goes down, and everybody feels devastated because then they're, a- they're not able to satisfy all their lofty demands. And so the di- divorces are rampant and everybody bugs out and it's all a disaster. It's because it's all legalistic. It's all part of the stoicheia. They're enslaved to it. So then what happens to the legalist then? So you're failing at your legalism. You're failing to achieve these things. And this was a threat in Galatia. They could, <clears throat> if they were going to fail to meet the Jewish standards, what was going to happen? What was the real threat? You fail at that kind of legalism and then you give up and you say, oh, I'm just going to chuck it all. Oh, I, don't, I, 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 do, I, don't, I don't care anymore about keeping these standards. So you don't care about law. You don't care about God's law. You chuck it all. The irony is, at that point, that person who chucks it all, they're still a slave to the legalism. They're just pretending not to be. So the good gift of God's law has been taken by Satan, used as a bad thing, so that the world is legalistic in heart, living the lie that they can meet God's standards or replace God with themselves or meet their own standards. But then they see the futility of this system. It's like forever pushing that rock uphill only to let it roll back down. The futility then, have you ever felt the futility? The futility makes people want to quit. They quit obligations. They quit marriage obligations. They quit church obligations. They quit obligations to their children. They just quit them all. They quit obligations to God. They quit truth. They just, they don't care if it's true. I quit. They quit love. I don't want to love anymore. I can't do this anymore. I'm just, I'm, I'm done. They quit goodness. But they're just as legalistic in spirit. They still are, even though they're saying, I'm just, I'm abandoning all this. And yet, if only people would look and see that God is merciful to supply what he demands. He gives what he requires. That's that's what we need. He gives it. So you don't come to God trying to bring a legally acceptable heart, you come to God for one. That's good news. 
And that's why then Paul has these marvelous words. My next point. It's one of my favorite paragraphs in all the Bible. Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come. Oh, how people waited for the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He's born under the law. He had God's law demanding on him. A real man, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. The law, God's good law, even the law that Satan had twisted. He came to redeem those who were under the condemnation of the law so that we might receive adoption. Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Does that sound like someone who's trying to climb a ladder? Does that sound like someone who cares what anybody else thinks? He's, all he cares about is what his father thinks, and he appeals to him. And he's accepted. She's accepted. Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave. That is a fact. Instead, you enjoy the privilege of being a firstborn son. This applies to men and women. It's the legal status of being the firstborn son, the heir of all the estate. You enjoy the privilege of being the heir of the kingdom. We just saw, didn't we, how King Charles III strange to call him, you know, Charles III. I would have picked a different name, but anyways, that, bad history on Charles I and II, but that's, that's a history joke, not very funny. Um, you know, we saw he's, he was in the line of succession after his mother, the queen, died, right? He's the one. Now he is, he is the heir. Well, Christ has redeemed those who believe in him, And if that's you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you've been put to the front of the line in the line of succession. You are are an inheritor of the kingdom. You are a co-heir with Christ. You are an heir, not because of your legal performance, not because you've been a good Christian, not because you kept your nose clean, not because you, you know, had the right philosophies going, no, no. It's, it's, it's not because of your legal performance. It's, you're not an heir either because you reject it all. Because you said, oh, well, enough of the legalism of the world and laws. I'm just going to be a free spirit. I reject all of that. No, no. That's, it's still legalistic. No, you are an heir through God. Through God. And so I've got to ask, are, are you running scared this morning? You're just, you're just running scared, trying you, all these demands, all your own standards in your head, and you're running, 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 trying to keep all this stuff. Or maybe you're saying, no, I can't keep these standards anymore, so I'm just going to run away. And there's people in this church, they're tempted to run away. 
to run away from God, to run away from God's law, to run away from Christ. Because they think, oh, i got to run away. I can't handle these demands anymore. Maybe you just, you're just run ragged. That's what you're lamenting, is you're just exhausted deep in the soul. All of this is trying then to meet the demands of the system of sin. You're either exhausting yourself or you're kidding yourself. You're desperate to play the game better or you're going to stand aloof and you're telling yourself you don't have to play the game. But friends, there's a better way that Paul gets at here. And it it has been given already in the fullness of time. It is the gift, gift, undeserved. It's a gift, the gift of Jesus Christ who won the game, who vindicated the law, who obeyed the law perfectly, which no one else from Adam on down has ever been able to do. He is the game changer. So we can rest in Christ. And when we rest in Christ, then it energizes us to obey God from gratitude, not guilt. From love, not coercion. From delight and not dread. Friends, if you have been captive to this enslavement, I urge you today to look to Christ anew and afresh. Stop looking to your own standards, the standards of the people you care about. Forget those. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. When you see God's holy law, which we ought to see as good and true, you don't have to fear because Christ has kept the law and he intercedes for those who believe in him. To whom else can we go? He has words of eternal life. Let us go to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would deliver us from this legalistic spirit. You would deliver us from its presumed opposite, the antinomian spirit, which is actually a legalistic spirit as well. And I pray, Lord, you would cause us to rest. Rest in Jesus Christ that we can know that we are accepted by you accepted in the beloved oh jesus christ is your own beloved son and if we are in christ you accept us no standards to meet for us they have been met lord grant us that freedom and liberty and help us live like your children like heirs and not like slaves we pray in jesus name amen